You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Mark Buchanan, who is currently a columnist for Bloomberg and the author of many books, Forecast, What Physics, Meteorology, and the Natural Sciences Can Teach Us About Economics. But he's also the author of some other books, including classic Ubiquity, Why Catastrophes Happen, The Social Atom, Why the Rich Get Richer, Cheaters Get Caught, and Your Neighbors Usually Looks Like You, and another one called Nexus, all about networks. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks, Gregory. Thanks for the invitation to to be here. Well, so in this book, Forecast, you talk a bit about what we might think of as a crisis in economics. I'm not sure that the folks in economics ever perceived there to be a crisis, but certainly policymakers, folks on the outside, and maybe some of the more self-reflective folks within the economics profession were forced to rethink some of their fundamental beliefs after the financial crisis. And this book indeed came out a couple of years after the financial crisis. And you remind us of one of the major criticisms that has been kind of levied against economics, which is that it suffers from what some people call physics envy. And the main problem with economics is that it tries to stamp out the humanity and replicate what people do in physics. And I think what you say as a physicist, you say, hey, this criticism is invalid. If, If it is trying to replicate physics, it's replicating kind of the physics of the Middle Ages and that physics has come a long way since then and that maybe they should be trying to replicate physics, but the physics of the of the modern era. Is that a fair summary or at least summary of one major thread of your criticism of economics? I think so. And I think I think that actually it would be fair to say that theme runs through all three of the books you've mentioned. And that is that string theory. People think about physics. If they haven't been trained in physics, they what you hear the most about is things like you know cosmology, the origins of the universe, uh, quantum theory, and yeah, string theory, astronomy. Certainly, lots of applications, ideas in astronomy, and a lot of the mathematics of these areas of science, where the concepts have bled into popular culture, emphasizes certain ways of looking at things, where you find you know, the, the solution for the problem where the system settles down into some state that is lowest energy or solves the problem for, for the system in, in the best way. And there's a tidiness to the mathematics. It's all elegantly worked out. People solve the equations for string theory or whatever it is. And then you have your solution. It's beautiful to behold. And that's how you end up having your theories of physics. They're elegant. They have some parameters in them. Here's the standard theory of physics. It has something like 19 parameters if you get down to it. But there it is. It encapsulates all the basic laws of physics into one set of elegant equations. Now, that's true that that bit of physics does exist. But I think it gives the wrong impression because the real engine of creativity and discovery in science and in physics is all about a whole different set of problems. And this has been true for, I'd say, at least a century or so, where physicists have been trying to understand systems that do not settle into some nice, simple state which has an elegant solution. Rather, there's all kinds of crazy things that go on, and the system keeps on almost settling on, but then blowing up again. 
and the time series of events that you find in these systems, they're not just simple, you know, rhythms of cycles or even cycles upon cycles, but they're things that are highly irregular and erratic and chaotic. And the time series are more naturally broken up periods of you know, long periods where nothing much happens and there's bursts of activity where everything goes crazy and then it settles down again partially, but then there's another burst. There's a, there's a kind of dynamic that is seen in many, many systems throughout the world of highly erratic processes. And physicists have been trying to understand those problems more so than the elegant equilibrium kinds of problems that are all in the textbooks and have in popular culture. But the new kinds of mathematics, which is more erratic, less likely to give you tidy, nice solutions, but it's more attuned to the real world, is less familiar to people, even though it's, it's invaded all of, all of modern science and people use the, the new kind of mathematics all the time. That hasn't been realized outside of physics and engineering, perhaps, as much as it should be. So I, I first started thinking about this you know, after I'd finished my PhD work and I did a couple of postdocs, and then I got a job as an editor at Nature, the science journal, and I was handling their basic physics manuscripts. And I, no I started noticing there are lots of papers and areas of science. Some were in look, looking at um, mass extinction events in biology. They're looking at the rhythm of extinctions. Some were looking at at growth processes in dis highly disordered systems that you might think of as more kind of in biological areas where things are growing on in certain kinds of terrain. And you can see these very highly disordered structures that emerge, people trying to understand those mathematically, or the shapes of broken rocks and things that look highly irregular. So there's lots of studies in physics trying to understand the emergence of highly irregular structures both in, in natural systems, but also in economics, human systems, in financial time series. And there was, there was a lot of research in this that seemed highly promising to me. And I thought I should really try to write about this and to try to get across the idea that lots of this mathematics, that's really important and exciting, and that can explain a lot of the real messy world that we live in all the time, hasn't been, people haven't realized how useful this might be. And so I started exploring this in the context of human history in particular, and I had some help. I met some historians who would, had been trained at Oxford and Cambridge, and they were associated with, with a publishing company. I, I agreed to write a book about this. And so we had long discussions, and they said, what are their aims? What kinds of problems do they want to solve? What kind of things do they think they're not even going to try to solve? And so I did that, and it was a fascinating experiment to, to learn a lot about historians, which I didn't really know much about before that. And out of that came kind of perception that, that historians also were still working within the, the framework of a set of mathematical ideas about how things change in the world that was really older. It goes back to astronomy, gradual changes up or down or cyclic changes. They weren't really exposed to this new kind of disorderly mathematical science. Historians might have a very different picture of the world if they could adopt this new set of mathematical concepts and have a new armory of ideas with which to confront human world in trying to, to explain the things and, and the events that seem to surprise us so often. Well, this seems like a very imperialistic approach to physics. Economists have always been accused <laughs> of imperialism. This seems like, you know, physicists being imperialistic 
you're talking not just about the application of physics to things like geology and you know climatology, but also you're talking about it as applied to human behavior, social interactions, history. I began my studies with an astrophysics. I very quickly kind of got bored because not much happens. Right? You got stars and so forth. And it didn't really seem to offer much insight into the world around me, the one that I was you know, experiencing in my daily life. And so I switched to history and economics where there's some human agency. And so we'll have to talk a bit about this idea of human agency, but I want to hear more about this idea of negative versus positive feedback, right? And equilibrium versus disequilibrium, because this view, the equilibrium is something that when you write an article in economics, the very first thing you have to do is establish that there's an equilibrium in your model. And this becomes so deeply ingrained in your way of thinking, even if you just are, you know, an econ major, it becomes this idea of, you know, homeostasis and, and equilibrium and, and negative feedback. It becomes such a second nature to you that, you know, when you encounter it in even like network economics, it requires a complete rethink. So why is it that there's just this continual attraction to kind of equilibrium? And, and why do we consider everything that is disequilibrating to be like an exception to the rule or a shock or something that is yeah, it's temporary. It'll resolve itself. And so we don't really need to think about it. It's kind of like, you know, studying weather with no storms. Right. Yeah. So I, I guess that, that has to do with certainly with the history of the development of economics and the first models in economics going back to, you know, the 19th century were, were equilibrium based models, people setting up systems of equations and thinking, well, maybe all the people can organize their needs and desires and all the business firms and if they do this together, they'll come to some self-consistent solution, which is a, solves all those problems in a fairly good way. And you come to some equilibrium, and that's a description of the economy. And so there's been lots of development building on that using sophisticated mathematics, which have you know furthered that framework of equilibrium thinking. What I want to do when I find a new problem is I want to set up the conditions that describe the situation and then solve for the equilibrium problem, a solution that tells me how things will be when things settle down under kind of normal conditions. That becomes a paradigm and people work within that paradigm. And of course, going back to Thomas Kuhn, there's lots of interesting, useful problems to solve within that paradigm. And people love becoming experts in doing that and they build whole careers on that. And the same thing is true in physics. Certainly, there's huge volumes of theoretical physics that are all about solving equilibrium problems. If you, we have some new kind of solid made up of interacting molecules, and maybe it's a little bit different than the interactions we've understood before. And so you can solve the equations, try to find the, what we in physics call the ground state, find the lowest energy state, and you study the properties of that. What's the pressure volume relationships? What kind of excitations does it have? So there's huge amounts of physics that's been done like that. And that was up until maybe, you know, 1930, 1940. That was, that was the main challenge in physics. I think since then, things have really shifted and people have started looking at, a, at an entirely new paradigm of problems. And it's become more interesting to look at transitions. That is where systems abruptly go from one regime of behavior into another regime of behavior. And these transitions can happen very quickly. And they're driven when 
suppose you, you take, you know, say a, a piece of ice and you're, you're heating it up gradually. The molecules are you know, still in contact. There's forces connecting them together. It's a solid and everything seems to be normal. But suddenly as you tip beyond the zero degree mark, without any prior warning, the thing falls apart and you get this rapid transition into something that is liquid, can flow, can move around. And so how does that happen? How do you get these transitions that go from one thing to another very quickly when, when on a knife's edge, things become unstable and fall apart? So in physics, it became interesting in the, in the 1950s and 60s to try to start understanding phase transitions. And there, there's a whole area of science or, or physics called theory of critical phenomena, which is probably, I'd say, the most interesting and important area of physics in the past century that was largely worked out in the 60s and 70s and early 80s, where people started understanding these phase transitions where you know a gas will condense into a liquid or ice melts into a liquid, or you have changes in metals that change from one crystal phase with one kind of organization of the molecules. And abruptly, at some pressure, they suddenly change into a different structure of, of molecules. What makes it happen? And how does the system go from being stable to being unstable very rapidly? And what drives those transitions? And is it possible to understand? And it turns out it, it was possible. There's this beautiful theory of critical phenomena. Though there's an infinite number of different systems, it turns out they all fall into these categories, really simple categories of phase transitions, where if you have two totally different materials, but they're in the same class of phase transitions, then essentially when either one undergoes a phase transition, you get exactly the same kinds of behavior. And that, that was an amazing solution for physicists and an insight into the kind of the world of really messy things that were surprising people around us. So this understanding of instabilities has moved into the, the I'll come to that in a minute. And to one of the reasons when I started writing about economics and was surprised that economics and finance was still locked in this world of equilibrium problems, even though it seems like the most interesting events are the, are the crises, the transitions, the breakdowns. Those are the things that really get people worried and excited, and where the policymakers have to scramble to figure out what to do. When everything's going normal, well, okay, that's, that's great. But it, the most interesting things are the positions, the moments when things break down and change rapidly, when things become unstable. And but you, I, quote, you, quoted, you quoted Charles Goodhart as saying that, you know, general equilibrium theory excludes everything that's interesting. Right. Yeah. What, a, what an interesting quote. Everything I find interesting. That's what he said. Yeah. And so it struck me that there's this breakdown where the equilibrium problems were considered to be the most important. And that paradigm was so influential. And one thing that, that perhaps my own training, so I, I worked in, in plasma physics. And so in plasma physics, well, a plasma is just a gas that you heat up until the molecules come apart. And then you have charged particles. So they interact over a larger distance. And that gives a plasma a very different set of properties. But you can have a container, put the plasma in there, there's an equilibrium for the plasma, and you can describe that, simple to do, job done. But actually, the job isn't done because when you start doing things with the plasma and try to make it do things like heat it up or do other things that might be useful in an engineering sense, you find that, that no one expected. And there's a whole series of what are called instabilities, which people try to understand when the plasma, when you're trying to make it do one thing, suddenly does something 
totally unexpected. And these were these were first discovered when you know back in when they're trying to make the atomic bomb in the in the World War II era. Took a nuclear matter when you try to implode it and it reaches high temperatures. If you can get it to implode effectively and mix together well, then you'll get very high temperatures. You can get a good explosion. But what you find happens is when you start to compress it, there's a front naturally. There's the stuff that's really compressed and it's pressing down the stu on the stuff that isn't compressed yet. And as this happens more and more strongly, you start to get a breakdown or an instability in that layer and you get wiggles that grow. And then those wiggles become bigger and it mixes all the material together. And this is a big problem confronting the bomb designers in trying to make it work. And this is called a plasma instability. And back when I was in graduate school, I remember on my, in my office on the shelf there was a book called the, the Handbook of Plasma Instabilities. And in my own research, I wasn't really looking at, the, at those too much, but I, I kept glancing up with it every day and thinking, geez, there's a lot of instabilities because this book is like that fat. And it, in, inside of it was just a listing one after another of all the things that people had learned about where you could take a plasma put it in some simple situation, heat it up or start compressing it or doing something to it, and suddenly it would go crazy and doing something unexpected. And you'd come to some threshold of instability where the simple situation would break down and something totally new would emerge. And people in doing engineering problems had had to solve these problems, come to learn when those instabilities were likely to strike, how you can maybe suppress them, or engineer your way to make them not happen. So instabilities were the real focus in plasma physics because it was clearly a very complicated system that was always doing surprising things. And so focusing on instabilities was the more useful way of thinking than looking just at equilibrium situations. And so I was, I was struck by that when I, when I started writing about economics and coming to, to that field, that there was this difference in emphasis on equilibrium and normal times, calm, safe, normal times, versus those moments of most greatest interest when things break apart and something really news happens, which has always been the focus in, in plasma physics. And so when I started writing forecasts, of course, as a, as a writer, you want to think, okay, well, what? I need some simple metaphor or story that I can use so everyone can have an, a feeling for this. You know, how many readers out there care or know about plasma physics? Almost zero. So I thought I've got to think of a different example of something. And I, I started reading about the weather. And I didn't really know much about the weather. And what is, where does weather come from even? I didn't really know. And I started reading some books about atmospheric physics and learned this fascinating story that you know, where the weather com comes from is you have, you have the earth, it's being heated by the sun. So the equator is generally warmer than the poles. So the air there warms up, it rises. So you get these flows of air that go you know, up, up near the equator and then down by the poles. So you get these flows of air like this. So that's interesting. That's fairly stable kinds of thing. But then on top of this, you get the jet streams that form. So this air is cooling up near the poles for angular momentum conservation, some other physics stuff, it starts to swirl a lot, going around the poles at a high speed. So that's interesting too, but that's still kind of an equilibrium thing. But then the, the other thing I learned, and people have known this for a long time, is that there's an instability in the way 
those jet streams work. So they become, all right, they're going around, swirling around the poles in a fairly stable way, but eventually that swirl becomes unstable and the smooth rotation becomes prone to wiggles and those wiggles grow and eventually some of those wiggles will tear themselves off and then they travel down through the rest of the atmosphere through the mid-latitudes, creating storms and weather. And so, you know, the way the atmosphere works is like this engine of churning out perpetual instability and sending those sparks or swirls down through the atmosphere, through the mid-latitudes, creating storms. And that's why we have this unending weather. The weather isn't being created by any kind of shocks coming into the system from outside. It's all being just churned up as a natural part of the dynamics of the atmosphere. And so when I learned that, I thought, that's a that's really fascinating, first of all. And second, it's a great story because everyone knows the weather and how the weather is naturally unpredictable. And we have invested a lot of money in trying to understand the instabilities that naturally lead to weather, storms, hurricanes, all those kinds of things. And I thought, you know, that, that seems like the right metaphor for what economics could be doing. Storms in, in the sense of weather are natural instabilities, the result of natural instabilities that the system churns up. The same thing, financial crises, economic crises, debt crises, all those things are natural instabilities that get churned up by the normal workings of the economy. It's just going to create those things. And it seemed to me that economics would be well-placed to put more emphasis than it does today on understanding the, the instabilities that create all these kinds of things so that we can understand when they're likely to occur, perhaps see how we might be able to head them off, avoid the conditions where they tend to occur. And maybe some of them are things that have to occur. Maybe maybe there's no suppressing them. We just have to live with them and try to make them as at least damaging as, as we can. Well, you use a couple other wonderful metaphors. I mean, you talk about earthquakes and earthquake science. You also talk about, you know, if you're building a pile of kind of grains of rice, right? At some point, you're going to have these avalanches, but, you know, it's a very unpredictable process. And I'm wondering the extent to, I mean, I later became an economic historian and, you know, I wonder if this equilibrium viewpoint fundamentally shapes how we think about causation, right? So if everything has a tendency towards equilibrium, then any kind of radical change has to be the result of some shock. So that's why we kind of focus on the proximate causes rather than kind of the underlying structural causes of these these transformations. So for instance, you, you mentioned the Hindenburg, right? The explosion of the Hindenburg. Well, what caused the explosion of the Hindenburg? An economist would say, well, you know, some there was a spark, right? Whereas a physicist would say, the thing was filled with hydrogen, right? You know, that's probably the cause, right? And an economist, if they saw this you know, pile of rice collapsing, they would say, well, the cause was, you know, that individual piece of rice rather than the way in which the pile of rice is constructed. Presumably, if an economist were to look at a storm, they would say, well, that was due to this butterfly's wings, right, <laughs> which, which happened over here. And you recount the story of the flash crash. I actually interviewed Liam Vaughn, uh, who also writes for, for Bloomberg, and he recounted the story of Navinder Singh, right? And I think this book was written before Navinder Singh was discovered. And I think the, the blame was put on Waddell and Reed, which was a 
asset manager and, and everybody wanted to come up with some story about how there was some individual trader who did something. And when Nav Singh was discovered, it was like, thank God we got, you know, we can point the finger at, at some bad actor who created this meltdown and then we could move on and we didn't have to think about kind of the structural characteristics of the market that made something like this, you know, inevitable. Does our causal reasoning get shaped by our view of equilibrium? Is that a fair statement? And is that how we kind of interpret these events? Why is it that, you know, economists are kind of averse to thinking about, you know, final causes rather than proximate causes? Well, I think there's a lot to this question. You know, I think partially being humans, we're also, we want to find an an agent behind the, uh, some evildoer who should bear responsibility. And then we can blame them and then go back to to business as usual. That's part of it. But I think you're right. The equilibrium mindset makes you originally think that anything crazy that's happened or out of the norm that's happened must have been caused by something unusual, some external factor that came into the system and triggered some big event. And so I, I think what a lot of modern physics is has been trying to understand and look at is well, how often is it the case that systems just naturally within their own dynamics churn out very surprising big events that seem to occur out of nowhere, but really they're just they're just ordinary things that happen in those kinds of systems. And if you can understand the overall systemic organization of that system, you'll see that, oh, this isn't actually even a surprising event. It's just one of the normal larger scale events that we should expect to see in these kinds of systems from time to time. The only way to get rid of it, it would be to totally re-engineer the system and make it in a different way. So, and you mentioned this, the sand pile example. So there's a, there's the rice pile as, as it turns out, but there's a long history to this. And I think it even goes back to, in science, goes back to the discovery of what we call chaos or deterministic chaos. So it used to be thought that if you had a system where maybe there's two or three factors at work driving the system, maybe it's your, your rabbits and foxes in an ecosystem, rabbits are eating foxes, they're not eating foxes, rabbits are being eaten by foxes, foxes are looking for rabbits to eat. If they eat too many, then there's no food for the next year, so then the foxes will have a hard time breeding. There's a natural up and down in the dynamics of foxes and rabbits. But you'd think it's a fairly simple system. There's only a couple of factors going into determining the dynamics of that system. And so it used to be thought until mid 20th century, really, that if the factors in the system are just a couple things and they're fairly simple, then the dynamics that emerge out of that are also going to be pretty simple. You're not going to get highly complicated, hugely erratic, unpredictable dynamics when the causes are really simple. And so the discovery of deterministic chaos was that that's just totally wrong. That intuition is wrong. There's plenty of mathematical systems where the system is very simple. You can write down the equations in two lines. There's only two or three factors at work. And yet the output that comes out and what you see is essentially random, unpredictable, hugely complicated. And it's because those factors just go together in such a way that, that the system is highly unstable. So any little tiny spark of noise quickly diverts the system down to, onto a new trajectory. And, and so there's no, essentially no ability to make longer-term predictions. These systems are essentially random. 
So that was a big shock to to physicists and scientists in general that there's this sharp break between simplicity in causes and simplicity in outcomes that we used to believe in. Now it could be that the causes are really simple, but the outcomes in terms of their detailed histories are really complicated. Wait, is our, is our thinking about that kind of advanced due to our ability to run simulations, right? So before you had to more or less work out, you know, what was going to happen using equations. And now you can kind of run simulations and, and see what happens. Is that methodology opened our eyes? Yeah, I think, I think without, without computers, if we had never had computers, we may still have not discovered how, how widely prevalent deterministic chaos is. And it's because it became so easy for people to, well, I can't solve these equations, but I can quickly write a simulation and I can run the trajectory forward and see what happens. I can do it again and see the trajectory is totally different. In fact, it was discovered back in the 80s that lots of the simulations that were being done, you could write your program, run it on one computer, take it over to your friend's computer, run the same program, same software, and it would get a totally different result, even from the same initial condition. So it just shows you how unstable these systems of equations are. So yes, indeed, I think computers had a big effect in letting people try to do experiments, if you will, with the mathematics and gain more intuition over how things might be working. We would have been stuck if we just had to solve the equations because a lot of them are just simply unsolvable in any kind of traditional sense of being, being solvable. So that was kind of a main first step in the breakdown between the link between the simplicity of of causes and the simplicity of outcomes. And then the second main breakdown was this thing that you were mentioning, this, this rice pile effect. So this is a, a theory that was proposed in the late 80s, late 80s, early 90s, I can't remember exactly, but it goes by the term self-organized criticality. And there was a few theoretical physicists who found some really simple model, and the model had the following bizarre property. It was very simple and it would churn out, you know, it had the dynamics to it. You'd start the system working and it would churn out outcomes, a, a time series of outcomes. And the outcomes were unpredictable, maybe not surprising because we now know that chaos is a real thing. So even though the causes are simple, the outcome is not simple. It's erratic. It's unpredictable. What they found was that for this system, it was worse than just being a little bit unpredictable. Even the scale of the events that were being churned out were highly unpredictable. They were ranging over many orders of magnitude, say by a factor of a million or 10 million or 100 million. So in the time series of events that were coming out, you'd have lots of little events scattered together over time, some five times, 10 times bigger. And then suddenly here's one that's 100,000 times bigger. Then it comes back to lots of small events again. And then here's the one that's a million times bigger. And it is so natural when you see this huge event emerging out of a background of almost nothing happening to think, yeah, what caused that event? What was the special thing that made that happen? Well, these physicists had devised a system or discovered a system where there was no special thing. There was no special cause whatsoever for these really big events. They're just like every other, other event. It's just that, that the dynamics in the system in the big event happened to you know, roll heads five times in a row rather than only three times in a row, but it could have gone any other direction. So this was kind of the first philosophical example of a system with a clear break between the simplicity of causes and even the scale of the outcomes of the events themselves. 
And quickly, these people suggested that, it, in fact, this might be a good explanation or might have something to do with some things that have always puzzled natural scientists. And one of these is earthquakes. So earthquakes range in magnitude over a tremendous range in, in the scale of the events. There's earthquakes going on all the time. They're just too weak for us to even detect. With seismographs, we can detect those things. They're very small. They're happening all the time. And then once in a while, you get bigger earthquakes that you can, you can feel and sense. And then occasionally, you get the really big ones, the seven on the Richter scale magnitude earthquakes that are really huge. But earthquake science suggests, and this is, there's a complicated story here. There's some controversy over this as well. But it suggests that for, for pretty plausibly, there's not much difference between a really big earthquake and one of the really small ones that are happening all the time. The only thing difference about a big one is that it went on a little bit further. The splitting apart of the Earth's crust was a kind of a triggering process that lasted longer, went on further, and released more energy. But qualitatively, there's nothing different about it and no different cause from the really small ones that are happening all the time. In that sense, then, really big earthquakes are effectively unpredictable. There's nothing special about them that would make us want to try to even predict them. They're just typically earthquakes. All earthquakes are typical earthquakes. And this goes back to this idea of the rice pile as a metaphor for systems in which even the scale of the events is unpredictable. And, and there's no really no reason for why some events are a lot bigger than, than other events. And so I, I really find that, that bit of science interesting because I, I think some of the, the most valuable experiments in physics and mathematics are those things that give us systems that work in such a totally total way that our intuition would have never expected anything to work. And it shows us a whole new conceptual category of the way things might work in the world. And we can then use that as a, as a new placeholder for things that we see in the world and think, ah, oh, might those things be one of these kinds of systems rather than all the old equilibrium systems that we've been used to thinking about in the past. It's a new set of metaphors and concepts that we can take into the world and try to understand Okay, are earthquakes events of this kind? Are financial crises and economic crises events that share a, a similarity, qualitative similarity with the process that generates earthquakes? Is there something similar between all these different kinds of events? And it can maybe seem a bit crazy at first glance because the, the systems are so different in terms of the, the actual things that are at work, whether it's people making decisions and following one another and making decisions and trying to make money or rocks breaking apart and putting more pressure on neighboring rocks, leading to triggering events that avalanche out into earthquakes. They are very different. All, all the causes and effects are different, but it could be in principle that at least the, the basic logic of the cause and effect that's going on in, in these different systems is very similar. And therefore they are effectively systems of the very same kind. Well, so if you compare physics and economics, all right, I mean, physics has made an enormous amount of progress in the last century. And presumably it's because when physicists see something that they, they can't explain, they try to go back and refine their model or look for new models that can help kind of explain or predict what they're seeing. Whereas in economics, if there's a gap between what they see and what the model says they should see, they kind of double down on the model, right? I mean, this seems a little strange. Why wouldn't we see a similar type of kind of progress in economics? I mean, we can talk about, you criticize Milton Friedman, right? But Milton Friedman 
he, he said like the way we should evaluate a model is, you know, the extent to which it can predict and explain. And if you use that criteria saying, well, that's, that's a 25 standard deviation event shouldn't happen. Therefore I'm going to pretend like it didn't happen. Right. That doesn't seem like, you know, the way you should, you should kind of advance the field. Is it because there's kind of a gap between theorists and practitioners? I mean, I, I think that in some areas of finance, there's really a, a very close connection. Certainly, you know, when we think about option pricing and the development of, of sophisticated securities and strategies, you know, there is a lot of back and forth between the academics and the practitioners. But then you, you talk about George Soros and Cliff Asnes and Paul Tudor Jones. And, you know, those folks are not, they seem to be not, they're not relying on kind of academic or theoretical work when they're designing their strategies. So why are those people considered to be outside of the realm of the discipline? What accounts for this gap between progress in physics and progress in economics, particularly financial economics? I'm not sure I have an answer to that question. Again, it's it's history and the culture of economics. And um, now I've written many things that have been uh, really critical of economic models and the modeling ethos in economics, especially, you know, the concepts of equilibrium. And in some of that, you know, it, it seemed it has seemed that much of this goes back to a, a certain set of models that are, were originally developed in in economics, going back to Arrow, Kenneth Arrow, and De Broglie, where there was this proof. This is back at the height of the Cold War and the battle between the communists and the the capitalists. So there's this set of mathematical terms that were used to build this theory of equilibrium economies that proved in some sense that they were efficient and ideal in, in a certain under a certain set of assumptions. And then there there were some theorems, so, so-called theorems that could be derived from this model that showed that not only did the capitalist system you know, lead to good outcomes, but they were in some sense optimal outcomes and couldn't be improved upon. And, the, you know, so there's this, these things called the welfare theorems. I've written lots of stuff criticizing that branch of, of economics. And but a lot of economists will say, well, we don't use any of that anymore. That's just so old. We don't even teach that anymore. But very quickly, if you go to the, go online and, and find the syllabus for introductory economics courses in some of the top universities, you know, there it is. There it is. It's oh, in yeah. the PDF. I, mean, I teach it's, it. <laughs> I teach it. <laughs> yeah. So, and so yeah. I think... I think one reason, so there's something really seductive about this, this kind of mathematical theory that lets you make claims about the optimal organization of a social system. And having been given that, I think it may become hard for economists to step away from that platform. If we had to admit that the earth goes around the sun, then God is dead, right? That kind of thing? Is it more like you know, the concern that, that the whole edifice will crumble if we acknowledge equilibrium doesn't explain everything? Well, I think what does crumble, so economists want to be able to say things. They want to derive, do some work with their mathematical models, derive a result. Here's my equilibrium model of this system. Therefore, I know this equilibrium has certain properties which are optimal. Therefore, I can make prescriptions, prescriptive statements about how we should proceed in this system that would be a good policy because it's going to help the world because here's the welfare theorems I can refer to. This is an optimal outcome in this particular situation. So they can refer back to this and take some authority 
from this set of mathematics, which says, okay, my proclamations aren't just arbitrary things I'm saying. They're based on this beautiful theory that's really powerful and has given us insight into economic systems. If you go back and you start criticizing the assumptions and saying, well, wait a minute, you know, we can't really believe that anything, any of this applies to the real world because this assumption X is crazy and that other one's crazy. Then if you accept that, then the economist would have to say, oh, well, well then I can't make any claims about my theory applying to the real world or, or that this kind of policy is going to be any better than any other kind of policy. Once I've given up this framework, this, it's like a platform I can stand on and then make proclamations about how a certain outcome would be better than, a, than another outcome. Once I've given up that platform, I no longer have any way to, to justify that the things I'm saying and prescribing might be superior to something else. So I think that there's a big reluctance to give up that trusted framework, because once you give that up, you've kind of lost some of your authority, and it's hard to make good arguments for why things should be one kind of policy should be followed rather than another. So why there's this split between the, the academic economists who kind of cling to that and perhaps gain some authority from that, and the financial people more in, in the practical part of the world who are just trying to make money and, and have a job advising companies who are trying to make money. I guess, you know, the, the financial world doesn't really care too much about the justification for what they're doing, you know, sometimes they may do that in terms of, you know, go arguing for lax regulation or no regulation because the economy is, the financial markets are efficient. That happens sometimes. But overall, I think the financial people have to be much more practical in the, in the theories they build and the ideas they use. At the end of the day, it's proven they either work or they don't work. And they tend to learn quickly and toss out the things that don't work and use the things that do. Um, I, I know, I know of a friend who's a, who's been heavily involved in one of the most successful hedge funds over the past 25 years. He, he's told me some fascinating things about their, you know, the best models they have to predict the movements of prices. He said, I think the, the most accurate trade we've ever made was about 52% accurate. We thought we could get about 52% right. But the way they do it is they make tens of thousands of trades every day and they get, they don't get 50. That's the best they, they ever were making. So it's probably something like 50.2 or something they're getting correct, but making tens of thousands of trades every day. And that's where they, they make their money. But that's fairly, very empirically based financial modeling that is just forgetting all the, all the theory of economics and looking at how you use mathematics to model the movement of financial prices and, and learn patterns that have existed in the past in the movement of prices and use those to make useful predictions going forward. And to make money that way. Well, to be clear, you're not criticizing the use of, of mathematics or the use of modeling. I think you're advocating a, a much more complex use of mathematics and, and a complex use of more complex modeling, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so what would be kind of the path out? Would it be, I mean, you mentioned that you quote Vernon Smith as saying that, you know, economists need to learn more from other disciplines. So what specifically should economists be importing from physics? I mean, is it the use of different types of modeling and, and simulations. Uh, you mentioned in, in the book that post-2008, a lot of public policy folks started using modeling techniques that hadn't been used before. I worked with the Congressional Oversight Panel back in 2008, and, and one of the things that was a big issue at the time was that the policyholders had no 
insight into how crowded different trades were and what the different networks of indebtedness were. And, you know, if the policymakers don't have some visibility into that, then they don't really have any way to think systematically about, you know, what policies might work at any given moment. And so, you know, would it be for the policyholders to understand how these different interactions work? And would it be agent-based modeling that you would use? How would you network modeling? What would be the techniques? I think the idea would be to be much more agnostic about the kinds of models. The point is to have a model that works and that gives you some some useful insights into the key dynamics at work in the system that you're trying to understand and manage. What are the most important variables? So you mentioned how crowded a trade is. So that's that's a turns out to be a, a really interesting variable in some markets, which can make transitions from being uncrowded to being overly crowded, which can lead to a lot of unstable behavior. And, you know, I think lots of the people who work in these markets, they tend to develop pretty good intuitions for what are the key variables, what are the key drivers of the behaviors that are seen in those markets, what makes surprising things happen, and why do they happen at certain times rather than others. I think there's usually human beings with experience who have some good ideas about what those things are. And that experience needs to be drawn upon in, in building models of any sort, whether it's agent-based models or equilibrium models or disequilibrium models that look at instabilities, models that try to look at the most important factors, put them together to get useful insights out about the things that policymakers care about, which is how can we alter the architecture of the market to make it more stable if we want to, or to make it be capable of blowing off steam and becoming unstable in a less dangerous way. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't really want to, I, I have made big arguments for agent-based models in the past. I think that's one useful way that needs to be considered more. I think what needs to be knocked on the head is any kind of resistance to a particular kind of modeling because it violates certain norms of elegance that have been traditional in the, in the field. You know, it doesn't assume perfectly rational agents maximizing their returns or something like that. If it deviates from those assumptions, well, then we, we can't do that because then then you can explain anything so that the argument goes. I don't think that's the case. People need to be much more agnostic about, about the kinds of models they can use. And I think maybe maybe one thing is just wider exposure to the kinds of models that are used across different areas of science. I think, I guess that happens naturally maybe more for people in physics than for people in economics. I can't say that for sure because I was never trained in economics, but I, from the reading I've done in economics, there seems to be a, a much narrower set of basic models. There's, there's not a thousand different kinds of models being used. There's like one or two or three kinds of models that are generally being used and elaborated upon. Whereas in physics and engineering, certainly there's all kinds of different models People use whatever they can to get some insight. Anything goes as long as it's kind of empirically useful and reproducible. Well, I mean, economists have been borrowing from other disciplines for, you know, quite some time, right? I mean, Brownian motion is yeah, know, something yeah. that we use over and over and over again. But I'm wondering, a lot of what you're talking about is about the misallocation of investment in economics, right? The misallocation of investment into research. And and I think it's not just the type of models we use, but also kind of the things that we're interested in. So, 
you know, you talk about the trade-off between efficiency and stability. Maybe you talk about the costs of liquidity as well as the benefits of, of liquidity. And maybe economists are, you know, so focused on efficiency that they don't spend a lot of time thinking about stability or the desirable consequence of stability. So, you know, talking about trade-offs is something that economists should be very familiar with, right? And if you if you talk about, hey, you know, every everything good comes at a cost, right? There's no such thing as a free lunch. Why why would economists think that that, you know, you can have efficiency right, without paying some price maybe in the form of stability? Yeah, again, so so you're right. And that but I think that goes back to the the, the mindset of the equilibrium model. So the equilibrium model is generally assumed to be stable. And so the question of stability is put off the table immediately because we can look back at those old, those old theorems that allegedly proved that there would be stability and the economy would, or the market would over time find the, the stable place. But you look at the assumptions that there's really no reason to, to believe that. So yeah, I agree with you. There, there needs to be, and again, this is widening the, the mind to a broader range of models that gets away from those old equilibrium models that preordain certain answers to certain kinds of questions. When we can see that, that uh, markets are not always stable, they repeatedly get unstable for a variety of different reasons. And there's many pathways to instability. Sometimes looking for, for more and more efficiency is one of the pathways that can take us to, to more unstable markets. And there has, been, there has been recent work that I and others have written about, specific modeling work using agent-based models and network-based models that suggests that, in, in fact, there ought to be a, a basic trade-off between efficiency and stability, and that presumably the, the most efficient market wouldn't have ideal efficiency. It would be fairly efficient, but be pretty stable and therefore more resilient, able to, to behave in a way that doesn't get too far out of balance um, and doesn't lead to you know, crazy things that, people, that cause you know, people to behave in unpredictable ways and overall function pretty well even though they're they're not perfectly efficient. And and this is what we do in the in the engineering world all the time. We don't make our engines as efficient as in the automobile. You don't make it as efficient as possible. Because if you did, you'd make it so light the engine material would be so light it would just fall apart um, after the first piston struck. So there has to be a trade-off and and balancing of efficiency and resilience and stability. Yeah, I think that we could talk about the coronavirus and how, you know, there's all yeah, these different yeah. objectives that are at odds with one another. But well, that, the efficiency and stability thing goes, I, it just came back to me. I remember one of the models that I've written about was, uh, so the the old idea going back to the Aero de Broglie kind of stuff is if you keep adding new financial instruments to the market so people can do essentially any kind of trade they can possibly imagine, then the system becomes more and more efficient because then all information gets expressed in the market and you would think it takes you to this nirvana of efficiency. The more recent modeling I've looked at suggests also that there is an, a direct trade-off that as you get closer and closer to that edge of a fully complete market, you also get closer and closer to one that is an entirely unstable market. And so there's a trade-off between completeness and efficiency in a model that I think is much more plausible than the old Aero de Broglie kind of models. Well, so I think one criticism that you might hear is that 
we have this physics envy and now you're just adding in more physics, right? I mean, sure, we've got feedback loops, sure, you know, we've got chaos, sure, we've got complexity. You're going to take a lot of these things related to, you know, fractals and patterns that you see and just apply them, say, take your stuff from plasma and then apply it to people and so forth. But what you're leaving out is that, you know, humans are very different creatures, right? We change our behavior as we learn about the models, right? We change our behavior as we understand more about how things work, right? So you even describe a couple scenarios in the book where, you know, anomalies are discovered and then those kind of anomalies disappear. So isn't there something fundamentally different about the study of people interacting with other people that makes it different from, you know, studying things like particles and, and, and objects and weather and plasma and so forth that, that physics will never capture? Or can physics do the job here as well? I think there's several answers, or the answer to this has to be on multiple levels. And of course, people are more flexible than hydrogen atoms. And we do more, a wider range of things, and we can, we can learn and adapt our behavior. And so any kind of modeling that you're going to do has to take that into account and fully accept that. And otherwise, your models aren't going to be believable. However, there's, you know, there's lots of situations when our capacity to do different things is strongly channeled by, by the situation we're in. If you're, you're driving down the road in your automobile in dense traffic and you're going the same speed as everyone else and there's no way to go from one lane to the other, you don't have a lot of freedom. You can... You can keep going at pretty much the same speed as other people. Maybe you can try to change lanes a little bit, but you can't do anything crazy. You're strongly constrained by the situation you're in. And so, you know, physicists and traffic engineers have built models of traffic flow where people are more or less like little molecules and they drive down the road just trying to stay sufficiently far away from the neighboring cars. And you find these models reproduce real traffic flows very accurately. Um, because human behavior in that situation is highly constrained and people can't do a lot of things. People in a market, what can they do? If they have one particular stock, they can buy it, they can sell it, they can hold it. There's three things they can do with that particular stock. If they sell it, they can buy something else. So they can, of course, they can change their strategies over time and, and do different things. But what has to be done is is the models have to be sufficiently complicated to include the key kinds of flexibilities that people have in the situations that you're trying to model. And then, and learning behavior is certainly something you have to be able to model, especially in, in a market, financial market, people are going to learn what they're going to see what other people are doing. And if someone else is making a certain kind of trade, that's being very effective, the other people are going to try to start, you know, some of them are going to want to copy that trade, start piling into the same thing. So models, that you build a financial markets have to use not just hydrogen atom like you know agents but agents with adaptive learning capabilities following behaviors copying behaviors but with those in mind you can build models that give you a lot of insight into the things that happen if you have a market full of agents who are capable of learning and responding to what they see other people doing fairly in fairly real time so it's the same as physics that you have to build the essential elements into your model that captures the key parts of your your agent's behavior, 
But in a lot of situations, our behavior is channeled, I think, and is, is simpler than we, we like to think it is because there's constraints put on our behavior. And if you can get those constraints correct, you can do pretty well in understanding how people behave. Now, of course, what's, what's going to be missing in the traffic models is that, you know, someone comes up with a scooter that can run through the traffic or a carpooling yeah, app, yeah. or they lobby the congressman to, you know, change the sequencing of the traffic lights and so forth, right? Those are the things that, that can't be captured in, in even a fairly complex traffic model, right? Yeah. And so that's what traffic modelers try to do. They, they, you know, they try to understand the basic flows of traffic, and then they try to understand what can disturb those basic flows. And if you get an, get an accident somewhere, suddenly there's a, a localized disturbance that's going to re, reorganize the entire flow to a certain extent. And then they try to understand, you know, how long is it going to take for that to dissipate and go back to being the original flow? And nowadays, I, I just was talking to some people last week where they, in the UK, they're, you know, nowadays they're using huge amounts of data gathered by sensors all over the roadways to test those models against real traffic flows and see how, how accurately we can predict, you know, how long is this traffic jam going to last? Well, it's going to last for, with a 30% probability, it's going to be at least an hour and 20 minutes before it dissipates enough. And then maybe they can plan ambulance services and things around that. But again, it goes back from having enough realism in the model that you can reproduce the kinds of things that happen in the real world. And then you can use it as a platform to do tests and give you some insight into the kinds of things that might happen and that you want to make policy decisions about in the future. Well, I can't let you go before asking you a question about the coronavirus crisis, because you know, this is yet another example of what we might think of as an unexpected event, kind of like the financial crisis, something that, you know, seemed to come out of nowhere. But, you know, there have been people that have been thinking about this and planning for it and running simulations about how this might play out. This field of epidemiology is one in public health is one that, that is very similar to economics and similar to social physics. Do you think that the field has done a good enough job of thinking through different types of models about human behavior and infectious disease transmission? Do you think there's been a gap between what these scientists have been thinking about and kind of how the policymakers have been kind of implementing policies? Well, that's a, that's a good question. And immediately, I think I want to answer something almost the opposite of what I just I was just saying about human behavior and its ability to surprise us. So I think epidemiologists have pretty good models. I happen to know one of the world's leading modelers, Alessandro Vespignani, who, who does large-scale computer models, including all the world's airlines, everything, real-time data to study, you know, if there's an Ebola outbreak in here, how long is it going to take to get over to San Francisco and, and where's it going to go? And they can do that pretty well. And so I think you know, looking at the coronavirus episode, in many ways, it's not very surprising. I'm sure loads of people have predicted something like this is going to happen. It's just a matter of time. And the way it happened probably isn't even that surprising. Something I wrote for Bloomberg last year, I was just stunned and amazed when I happened upon a paper in a biology journal, and they were talking about the Russian flu virus of 18, I think it was 18... 59 or something. Yeah. yeah. And so I started looking into this. It was a coronavirus, they think, right? They it think, was, yeah. 
Yes, yeah. but I, I, so it was amazing because this is just around the time when all all the crazy stuff was happening. So first, the coronavirus appeared in in the Far East, in China. Then you know I was in the UK. You're in the States. People were saying, "Well, it's not going to get here. Don't worry about it. Just the flu, all this kind of stuff." And then, of course, it swept across Europe, and then it went to the U.S. Across the U.S., all these things happened. People started coming out of the woodwork saying, "Well, we can cure this with, you know, bleach up the nose or whatever it is." All kinds of you know quack remedies started appearing, and then I came across this paper, and they said, "Well, this this Russian flu may have been a coronavirus." And so you read the history of that Russian flu virus. It came out of Russia. Everyone said, "Oh, don't worry about it. It's not going to be serious." And then it swept through Europe, killed a bunch of people, including various kings and royalty. People in the states said, "No, it'll never get here. Don't worry." Then it went to New York, and quickly, new technology—the railways—zipped it across the U.S. in a few weeks. And again, back then, all kinds of quack doctors came out of nowhere to prescribe remedies. And so this biology paper showed that they traced back the, the virus, and it looks like it was a, a virus that jumped. It was a coronavirus that jumped from cows into people, and they could they could trace back genetically. They could trace back the time of the most likely jump, and it lined up directly with this this Russian flu virus, which looks more like an earlier version of the coronavirus. And then that one became endemic, and it's one of the ones that now gives us common colds. So it looks like it, it already happened just over a century ago, and we have essentially have been through the whole thing, the whole story, even in the recent past. So I think epidemiologists knew this was going to happen, but I think it must be a tough field to be in because no matter what you do, when it happens, people are going to say, well, "Why didn't you tell us it was it's going to happen?" Because who reads the one in a century warnings about what could happen when it doesn't happen for a long time? People forget. And become complacent, and then when it happens, everyone's surprised. So I think epidemiologists are pretty much prepared. I think their models are pretty good. I think the one part of the coronavirus epidemic that has certainly been surprising and that has shocked me and surprised everyone, I think, is the way people have behaved. I wouldn't have realized that we as a people are so incapable of trying to. You know, follow what I would have thought would be a fairly simple set of rules to try to protect ourselves and protect public health. I didn't realize it would become so controversial that rules for basic protection of public health would be politicized. It takes a lot of imagination. Maybe, maybe it's beyond imagination to see the kinds of ways that humans can fall into these these polarized traps of self self perpetuating behavior. I would have never predicted things like that to happen. I suppose maybe you know, there is where you need the historians who, who, if they'd been aware of what happened in previous epidemics, would have said, "Oh, this this always happens. People get get afraid. When people become afraid, they cling to things they think they know, and then they become polarized, and and so it's hard to predict where things go." So going back to your last questions about modeling from physics. And including human unpredictability, that's a tough thing. And you can get so far. I think you can prepare yourself as well as you can by looking at models, and including the most flexibility into human behavior as you can, and prepare yourself for the surprising things that happen. But the most prepared you should be is that probably things are going to happen that you're not going to see coming. 
because these systems are just super complicated and there's always new things that can happen that people aren't going to predict or foresee beforehand. And having a good belief in, in your own fallibility is also a, a good way of being prepared. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perhaps one thing could have been done differently is that the models could have been more transparent, right? So we could have actually had public discussions where people could look at what the epidemiologists were doing and saying, hey, you know, here are these different interventions. And you can see, you know, if you if you do this intervention, you'll, you can see kind of, you know, the, the range of possible, the speed of diffusion and, you know, maybe have those models out front and center. Because I don't think that they were really, you know, publicized. I think it was more like you know, the conclusions were publicized, but not the kind of thinking, the, the careful modeling and thinking. I think that we could probably have done a better job of that. Yeah. It, and it, it, well, it became politicized so early on. You know, my, I don't really, I know the experience in the UK, but some newspapers t took the position that all these public health measures are crazy. We shouldn't do anything. It's going to ruin the economy. It's just the flu, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Others took the position that it would be the height of absurdity to, to not close things down and you know hundreds of thousands of people may, may die very quickly and it all became just hugely politicized and then then the modelers you know maybe reluctant to, to put themselves out there into the into the midst of that where they're going to be criticized no matter what they do well, but I think there's a dis there's a disconnect also between I think the epidemiological models and the economic models. So people couldn't actually see, you know, what those trade offs were, and so they couldn't decide, you know, where they want to be on the trade offs because they couldn't actually see, you know, okay, you do this, it's going to cost you this much, it's going to save you this many. You know, if you do this, it's going to cost you this much, it's going to save you this many. Instead, it was, you know, advocating the conclusion or versus advocating a different conclusion, and then suppressing any kind of, you know, careful argumentation in favor of one or the other. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, um, I mean, even though I'm in favor of, you know, making your model is as complicated as it needs to be to include all the, the crucial factors, I don't necessarily think we always need the most complicated model with a thousand, you know, variables in it, and which some of the epidemiological models become if you try to include all the channels of transport and all that kind of thing. So early on in the UK, there was this, you know, these UCL models from UCL who came out and said, well, if we don't do anything, you know, it could be about 250,000 people who would die. And they were immediately savagely attacked by the right-wing press saying, you know, so the right-wing press got hold of their models and showed them to some computer scientists somewhere who said, oh, these are all, they're full of errors. They're out of date, they're this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, in fact, you didn't need a model. All you needed was the back of an envelope. You could say, well, look, if it affects, if it infects 30% of the population and there's, there's this rate of death, then it's going to be about 200,000. You come to that conclusion without any kind of model. Um, you didn't need lots of bells and whistles. You just needed some basic thinking to make a, a decent, quick decision about what should we do right now before it gets out of control. If we wait four weeks, it could be a lot worse than it is now. We could act quickly and try to give ourselves more time to to act in future rather than being behind the curve. So at least that was, that was my position, but there it became so politicized and that's something I just didn't see coming. 
And I guess that's naivety on my part. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, certainly epidemiology, physics, biology, economics, I think conversations across these different disciplines will only benefit all of them. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining me. Remember this book here, Forecast, also Social Atom, Ubiquity, and of course, your columns in Bloomberg. Hope to speak again soon. Okay, thanks, Greg, very much. Nice to talk to you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.